You're listening to Borderline Idealist. Join us every Sunday and Wednesday for new episodes where we focus on introverts, highly sensitive people, and mental health. Log on to BorderlineIdealist.com for past episodes, blog posts, and to find ways to support us. Together, we can give a voice to introverts and tear down mental health stigma. This episode deals frankly with domestic violence and sexual assault. If this conversation will make you uncomfortable, stop listening now, or make sure you're in a safe place before you do listen. Hello everyone, welcome to Borderline Idealists. I'm AJ, the INFP. And I am Christian, or Chris, the INFJ. Today we have a very special guest. She is an old friend from high school. Uh, her name is Kelly Vines. She's a PhD candidate in English at Louisiana State University and is currently working on her dissertation. She's also currently an American Association of University Women Dissertation Fellow. <laughs> That's a long title. <laughs> she co-produces About South, a podcast about the South. She's also a survivor of domestic violence and sexual assault, here to talk to us about her experience with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. So, why don't you say hi, Kelly? Hi! I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I do want to say, as a disclaimer, I'm talking about my own experience, and I'm not trying to generalize the experience of all survivors. And I also want to say that I'm speaking not as a PhD in psychology, not as a clinical psychologist, so any of the recommendations that I give are based on my own experience and not experts' opinion about, you know, brain functioning, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is all based on my own personal experience. Please don't take my words um, as representative of all survivors because everybody's experiences are different. Yes, very important. Ajani, you want to um, start, get us started? Yeah, I'll start with the first question. <clears throat> so, uh, Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about your life leading up to your relationship that left you with the PTSD and anxiety and how it affected you afterwards, the, uh, the effects on your personality that it had, your thought process, and how you see the world. So I guess I'll much. start with the beginning. I've always struggled with anxiety, so um, that's not something that I kind of trace. It obviously got worse after the domestic violence But I've always kind of just struggled with anxiety in my personal life. I'm an anxious kid. And I was an anxious kid as a child as well. So I got into this relationship. I was 18 when I first met my former uh, partner. And a little bit of that young naivety that we all experience. Through the course of the relationship, things obviously turned bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it finally ended with a couple of... Well, it ended when my ex raped me, and then he also hit me with a car after an argument that we had. Um, And he um, hit me with a car several times. Mm. I was walking down a driveway, and he hit me several times until I fell down. And I'm very fortunate. I, I, it seems weird to say he hit me with a car several times, and I'm very fortunate. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. the fortune came because I was able to stay upright 
when I fell down. So I fell down into a seated position. Um, had I fallen down into a full prostrate position, he would have likely run over me. Wow. Um, and I likely would have had some, some grievous bodily injury. But as it was, I only had a pretty bad concussion and some scrapes and bruises from, from the incident. It could have been much worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how it affected me afterward. So obviously that relationship ended. After that relationship ended, I eventually figured out that I had PTSD from the trauma that had happened. Um, And PTSD is, or post-traumatic stress disorder, is a disorder in your brain that you can develop after you've been in or you've witnessed a severely traumatic event. So um, most of the time when people have PTSD from their experiences, it's because they went through something where they thought they were going to die. And I definitely thought that I was going to die. So... I first sought help from um, because I was having really violent dreams, mm. and I'm actually not a very violent person. I know I can just say that, but I'm not. <laughs> um, I'm not very prone to violence. It- I can testify to that as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I know I knew Kelly first in high school when I was in my junior year, and I believe you were. Your freshman year or sophomore year? Yeah, I freshman or sophomore, I can't remember. We were both in academic decathlon. For those nerds out there, <laughs> you may know what that is. AD, way to be. <laughs> and yeah, even back then, I remember, that's, you know, if I remember Kelly, she's a soft-spoken, very intelligent woman who is shy. And yeah. That's, like, that's what I remember. So, like, I mean, And very friendly. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't like watching horror movies. Like, that's how anti-violence I am is that I can't even watch horror movies. My friend posted earlier this month, since it's um, October and and Halloween is coming up, he posted a list of like movies that he's watching with his kids um, every day in October. So he posted this beginning and you know, they're horror movies, but they're not like terrible horror movies. And I was like, where's the, where's the list with Halloween town and Hocus Pocus? (laughs) Like that's the list of things I want to watch. I love Halloween, but I don't, love horror movies yeah um and so i i had these very intrusive dreams about violence either being um perpetuated onto me or me um actually like doing the violence oh you being violent yourself yeah um and so it was really disturbing to me so i so i wanted to get help after that i guess i can to kind of back up a little bit right after the instance of domestic violence i left the state um i was terrified that my ex was gonna find me um, and kill me. So I spent uh, a couple of months with my dad's family in Kentucky because I thought that was a place where it would be very hard to reach me. And then when I came back, um, I was having these terrible dreams and I was also having just like daily panic attacks. And so I first wanted to get therapy to kind of co- to deal with that, to be a human who wasn't panicking all the time. Mm. So I went to a couple of places and and I and I want to share this because I think that a lot of folks will go to one or two different places and then they stop um, because they think this isn't for them. So I went first went to a place, a domestic violence shelter to try and get therapy where they told me that I was too young and pretty for something this awful to have happened to me. Wow. Which I can understand that like the kind intent behind those words, but sitting across the table from somebody who was saying that, 
after literally I had such a massive concussion that I couldn't eat for a month. Mm. So I'd lost a lot of weight. I had like my face was sallow from not being able to eat and being dehydrated. And I thought, you know, well, maybe it was okay when it happened because I wasn't as thin as I was sitting in front of that person. Mm. Or, you know, the thought after that of like, when am I old enough and ugly enough for that to be an excusable thing? Right. right. So I can understand that person's positive intent, but it really just didn't, it didn't hit me the right way. So did that uh, discourage you at first? Yeah. Seeking additional help? Absolutely. Um, and then I went to a place that I didn't know at the time was very um, spiritually centered. You know, I heard things like God's only going to give us what we can deal with, mm. you know, like those kinds of. I've heard that one. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's like, well, when you when you put this in a position of like, well, God is only giving me a trial, that right. one excuses culpability from the person who hit me with a car, right? right. It was just God <laughs> testing me. Um, but then it also just like, I am not necessarily a believer. It wasn't necessarily helpful for me to find healing in my spirituality, especially in, in the Christian faith, right? So that wasn't something I was interested in. And then I found this wonderful place that was called the DeKalb Great Crisis Center. It's now called The Daily. It's in Decatur. I had an individual counseling session there. And as soon as I arrived, um, my counselor, Claudia, uh, she said, congratulations, you've made it. There's so many people who make appointments and don't make it in. And so, you know, I, I just want to share that to say, like, if you are experiencing these symptoms and you've been to a couple of places that haven't worked out, one, try the daily, first of all, but two, um, like keep searching because there is help for you there. And I really credit the daily with making me a functional member of society again. I don't think I could have recovered without their help. And I went through, you know, a six week intense trauma recovery support group. And it was really through that, through that group that I learned how to heal because you can be so hard on yourself when you're alone and say like, you know, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you, um, why are you forgetting this thing? Or why, why is this happening to you? Like you're so, you're going crazy. You're going nuts. But to sit in a room with people who've all been through the same hor or very similar horrible situations and to be able to say to them and really truly mean it, like, I can't, like, I'm so sorry that this is happening to you. And I'll only have love and care for that person. Through having that love and care for somebody else, you can start to learn to have the love and care for yourself. And all of that kind of skims over what PTSD is. So I can talk about that a little bit if you'd like. <laughs> okay, um, so PTSD, uh, like I said earlier, PTSD, it can develop after any traumatic event, after you witness or experience any traumatic event, especially where you think your life is in danger. Um, and one of the symptoms of PTSD that I didn't realize that I had been exhibiting until I got to support group was that, that I was forgetting things, that I was forgetting processes that I thought I knew by rote. So getting into your car and backing out of a parking space, mm. you think you know how to do that. But when you start to think about the number of discrete steps required to get in your car and to back it out of a parking space, it's a lot, right? Right. Um, 
like you, you know, you have to remember to buckle your seatbelt. Um, you can't turn your ignition on until your keys are in the ignition and your foot is on the brake, right? There are all of these things that you have to do. Um, and one of the things that happens when you have PTSD is that your amygdala records everything that's happening because the amygdala, to get very technical, is the part of your brain that's responsible for keeping you alive. It is the part of the brain that evolved right after the part of the brain that regulates heartbeat and um, breathing and blinking, all of the involuntary things that you do. Mm -hmm. um, and, it's, and its sole responsibility is to keep you alive. So when you're in a dangerous situation, your amygdala kind of records everything and will um, respond to anything that reminds your brain of this traumatic situation by producing adrenaline or by stimulating your adrenal glands to produce adrenaline, which triggers that fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. And that's great, right? Like when you're running from a tiger, <laughs> um, like we needed that yeah. at some point in time when we were regularly running from tigers. But you know, it's not that great when you, when you're, when you're just room. trying, yeah, when you're just trying to live your life and there's nothing dangerous around you. So one of the things that happens is that your amygdala after trauma will just kind of interrupt everything because it's like, Hey, you are in that dangerous situation. Are you okay? Is this dangerous? Is this dangerous? Is this dangerous? Is this dangerous all day long to the point that you can't really string together the, the thoughts that re are required to do really complex activities. You know, the car backing out of a parking space was really hard for me. I had sticky notes on my bathroom mirror for a really long time with all the things that I needed to do in the morning before I left the bathroom. I had sticky notes on the back of my door with a checklist of all the things I needed to make sure I had before I left the house to go to work. Basically, I had reminders everywhere of all of the things that you think you know by rote, right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I like to share that because a lot of people wouldn't necessarily think like, oh, I was raped and now I can't remember how to back my car out of the parking lot. And they don't think those things are connected, right? right. Um, but they are connected because it's your brain that is hyper vigilant in that situation and is keeping you from understanding how to do those things that you previously thought were really simple tasks, mm -hmm. right? And I think also sometimes people may just assume that you're okay for 99% of the time and then there's only certain occasions that may just have you, like give you those triggers and then that's the only times where you're not okay that you yeah. don't have to that you don't have to struggle through a daily day-to-day uh, -day life experiences that you go through yeah and like that's something that as kelly mentioned that a little bit earlier and uh yeah that was something that really jumped out to me was how detailed and granular people with uh ptsd had to plan their lives just on a day-to-day -day basis on yeah. a day-to-day -day <laughs> basis yes <laughs> yeah and it certainly was surprising to me too as somebody who was suffering with it you know it took being in therapy and being in support group and being in a group of women who are all like, oh yeah, I struggle with that too. You know, mm -hmm. oh yeah, I struggle with that too for me to really realize that this wasn't just me like losing my mind. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I know that these are pejorative things that we wouldn't necessarily say to somebody who is suffering, but I, I say them because I was saying them to myself at this point in time, mm -hmm. right? Is that I would sit with myself and think, 
I'm losing my mind. I'm going crazy. Like, why can't I get better faster? Why is this affecting me so badly? And I thought that I could just think through it. But I, if I just focused hard enough, that things would get better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually not usually something that you can just spontaneously think through or work through without really understanding and having somebody guide you through that healing process. Yeah. That sort of reminds me of where some people say, you know, you just got to believe or you got to, you got to think that you can do it and you'll be able to do it. Right. Have that mentality. Mind over matter. Mind over matter. Right. And that's, you know, you hearing you talking about that kind of reminds me of some of the things that Ajani and I have discussed with his uh, BPD and anxiety attacks that he'll have sometimes. And what is it? Overriding feeling that you're in this place where you are feeling uncomfortable. You don't want to be there and, and are sort of having that sense of... Um, like I have no control. Like there's nothing that I can do. Um, just feeling very uncomfortable. Right. Yeah. yeah. And definitely um, anxiety is a big part of, of PTSD for some folks as well. And of the symptoms of PTSD, anxiety is still the one that I um, struggle with the most. There's not like a, um, an end point where your life is the same as it was before. There's not like healing doesn't follow just one upward trajectory. Right. And I think that's one of the things that um, if I can, if, if anybody is to take just one thing from this program is that it's that, that healing doesn't look like, you know, you went and got help and it was always an upward trend until you were fully healed and you never had to think about it again. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not what PTSD looks like. There are definitely some, I, I guess I should say, that's not my experience with PTSD. There are some folks I know who very much have been able to kind of put this in the past, and it um, and it depends kind of on on each individual. But for the most part, trauma is something you kind of carry with you, and you develop tools to cope with it better and to live your life in a way that is normal. But um, there are still times when I have panic attacks. I mean, I will say like sometimes my partner who I'm with now, who I've been with seven years, who is wonderful. Sometimes he'll he'll touch me in a way that is loving, right? Like he'll just come up behind me and um, and give me a hug. And something about that moment will remind me of my trauma. And I push him away. My, mm-hmm. my gut instinct is to just get away, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and thankfully, you know, he, is, he understands what I'm going through and he doesn't take that personally. You know, I can be good for six months and then suddenly, you know, he comes and gives me a hug and and it feels like I'm right back in the situation where um, where I was traumatized mm-hmm. and, and my instinct is, is to go away, is to get away as fast as I can. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think like healing for PTSD, there's a point where you can live your life normally, but for me, there's not a point that I can envision Mm-hmm. where this where I won't have PTSD. Right. So how long were you in this relationship? Uh 4 years, over 4 years. And so there are there are people and I'm I'm asking that because there are people that question why would you stay in a relationship for so long? So could you uh talk about that? What what bound you to this situation? What what made you, you know, want to stay? Why did I stay? Yeah, why yeah. did you stay? Which is a hard question to ask because, you know, I, I don't know. It's just... I mean, part of it, like, it is kind of, 
it's a common question, and so mm-hmm. I do want to answer it. And I know it's coming from a place of of love from you guys, yeah. but a lot of times when that question is asked, it comes from a victim blaming mm-hmm. place, right? Um, like, well, isn't it your fault? Like, you went back to him after he hit you. Like, what did you think was going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people who've experienced domestic violence will hear that. Um, and the answer is complicated. I mean, for me, it took me, this was my first relationship, my mm. first real long-term relationship. So there were some things that I just didn't know that I thought were, it was the way relationships worked and it mm-hmm. wasn't, it was specifically mm-hmm. like, um, abuse. I mean, one of the first things was that I didn't really have the ability to con to like, be with my former friends anymore. So mm. isolation was a big part of it. So he didn't necessarily prohibit me from seeing my friends, but he would discourage it. And, you know, whenever I wanted to get together with my friends, there was always something that came up. Mm. Or he had already organized something that, you know, I could not be there for. Mm-hmm. So, um, so he kind of isolated me from my friends. He controlled you. Right. Um, and then through, through like, just criticism, right? I, t- I told this to a friend of mine, like, who, who asked a similar question, like, what are the signs of abuse? And sometimes, and, like, it's hard to distinguish between a normal conversation and an abusive one. Because, I mean, he, he controlled the way that I dressed. Hmm. But it wasn't. It wasn't that he had to tell me how to dress. It was the, like, I can't believe you're wearing that again. Mm-hmm. You know? Which, taken out of context, you can imagine you can imagine going up to your partner and saying, like, I, what do you think about this or this for me to wear to this party or whatever? Mm-hmm. And they would say, like, mm, maybe you shouldn't wear that. You just mm-hmm. wore that last week. I really like this dress on you better. Mm-hmm. So it was, like, it's hard. More subtle. To, it's hard, yeah. It's hard to distinguish like healthy, positive relationship in that in that particular instance with abusive relationship. But he also struggled with mental illness, and our relationship was better when he was well, and he treated me better when he was well. The reason that I stayed was because I felt obligated to take care of him. Mm. Did you feel like maybe if you could have, you could do something to help him stay? well or that maybe you had some some power over yeah um i mean power wasn't something i thought about day to day really i just felt obligated to help him be well mm-hmm. um and when he was most abusive was when he was also in the throes of his own mental illness and i felt bad for leaving somebody mm-hmm. when they're suffering right right like that feels like a horrible thing to do. Um, and looking back, you know, I can see that it wasn't always his mental illness. It was, he was using his mental illness as a way to manipulate me mm-hmm. into staying. A lot of it was also just finances. I wasn't very, I was naive about my finances and I didn't think that I had the money to leave. And he would often take control of my finances out of what seemed like goodwill but also prevented me from leaving right and that's a a very common reason that people will stay in abusive relationships is because of money family members i mean i sat in my house alone 
for three days before I told my family what had happened when he hit me with a car because I was also just very ashamed. Um, I was ashamed that I had married this person and that it wasn't going to work out. I didn't want to reveal that to my family. Yeah. I didn't want to admit that I had failed. I thought that everything would be okay as long as I could keep it private. Mm-hmm. Which meant that I didn't reach out to the people who could have helped me until, you know, I had a massive concussion and I was literally blacking out every day. Um, mm-hmm. So badly that I couldn't drive myself around for fear of blackouts, right? I, so it's really difficult for me to say, you know, what are the signs of abuse? Mm-hmm. Because they're so subtle. I mean, one of the things that I think is a sure sign of abuse is that isolation. Um, when somebody starts trying to keep you away from your friends, trying to keep you away from your family, run. <laughs> run far and fast as you can right. and get away. Yeah. So does that answer um, your question? Yeah, I think that does. Okay. Um, so with the current political climate, I'm... And not I, to I, jump I, too much too I, deep in there. Well, I'm just saying we <laughs> we all know what's yeah. kind of going. On. I I I want to kind of touch on I guess what's going on with what was going on with Kavanaugh. You know, we know who we have in the White House with the Me Too movement. All these things kind of touch on what you're you're speaking about. I think. Yeah. So how does how does that affect your your advocacy? Um, and you bring this message that you need to look out for these certain things. Does that, does it in any way um, make it fall? Do you feel like maybe it falls on deaf ears because of the doctor's name was? Dr. Ford. Yeah, Dr. Ford, um, a brave woman came forward. And I want to say it kind of felt like like it became so political that if you were someone who was going to speak up, you would think, well, no one's going to believe me. Mm-hmm. No one's going to want to hear what I have to say. Mm-hmm. And why speak up at all? Mm-hmm. So can you just kind of touch on that a little bit? The Kavanaugh hearings were especially difficult for me personally. Mm. I've been saying for a very long time, having Donald Trump in the White House. Mm. You can believe his name if you want. <laughs> um, having him in the White House made me angry in a way that Mm. helped me be a better advocate. Um, That inspired me to talk to students more, to help them understand what Mm. was an acceptable, consensual, sexual experience and what was not. Mm -hmm. Um, But the Kavanaugh hearings were so difficult for me um, as a survivor to listen to, to hear about. Um, I didn't listen to the full uh, testimony of of anybody in that because I just couldn't it just made me profoundly sad and made me start to have some of the anxiety and the difficult um difficulty sleeping and all of these um symptoms of PTSD that I still struggle with Mm -hmm. that are the kind of the first signs that I need to um start taking care of myself so I guess the thing, there are things about the Kavanaugh hearing that specifically echoed the aftermath of what I went through and what I know other survivors have gone through, mm-hmm. which is that, you know, you, you know this thing happened to you. you. You know it with your body. And 
you have people who are not willing to believe it. And sometimes I say, and I've said in therapy before with survivors, it wasn't so much the trauma, but the aftermath of what I went through. Because all of my friends who were at that point basically his friends because he had kind of isolated me from the people that I loved, Mm -hmm. um, they believed him when he said that I was lying Mm. about what I'd been through. They believed him when he said that I was just crazy and making things up, right? And so I lost everybody, literally overnight. Everybody who was a good friend to me was no longer somebody that I could go to for support. And one of the one of the biggest, hardest things to think about when it comes to domestic violence and sexual assault is that people will always believe, with very rare exceptions, people always believe that one person is capable of lying before they'll believe that another person is capable of assault. Mm-hmm. And that is held true so many times in my life and in the lives of people that I know who've dealt with similar trauma. We see rape on television as a stranger in a dark alley. I think something like 78% of rape cases are between people who are in an interpersonal, people who know each other before Mm -hmm. the rape happens, right? A large majority of Instances of rape happen between people who know each other, Mm -hmm. which generally means they are in the same friend group. And the hardest part for me about being a survivor is that when it comes to two people who are your friends, it is always easier to believe that one of them is lying than to believe that the other one is capable of rape. Yes, that's that's one thing that kind of resonated with me as I was hearing the Kavanaugh hearings and just my understanding of this as well. And the people that I've talked to or that or stories that I've heard about these people. And, and it was just so infuriating to, to see and to hear that people cannot believe that some men and not just men, but some people can do really atrocious things. Mm-hmm. That they may be fine, upstanding citizens, and they may be the greatest person you meet when you're around with them, mm-hmm. but they can be completely different when nobody's watching. When I when I talk about um, sexual assault and domestic violence with students, I always say, you know, it would be really convenient if all the people who are capable of doing these atrocious things had a tattoo on their forehead that labeled them as a monster. Mm-hmm. It would make them easy to avoid, and we wouldn't have to have you know trauma recovery groups because we could all just steer clear of these folks who are monsters. But what the monster kind of stereotype does is that it elides the fact that a lot of the people who commit rape are not monsters. I mean, I've I've said to a classroom before my. My um, my perpetrator could walk in the room right now, and you would never know. I mean, mm-hmm. I married this person, right? I thought he was charming and smart and kind, and he was. He was all of those things. He was smart. He was charming. He was kind at times. He's also a rapist. 
Mm-hmm. And he's also an abuser. Um, and those don't have to be mutually exclusive categories. The thing that stuck with me, going back to, to the Kavanaugh hearings, was that some of the Republicans believed her. And by saying, when I say they believed her, they would say, I'm sure it happened to her. I am sure that it happened to her, but just it wasn't him. Uh That's one thing that made me really mad because she said it was 100%. And uh, when you were talking about the the part of the brain that that holds on to these things that happen, Uh um, I think that's one of the things that Dr. Ford brought up that, you know, that's why she was so sure that it happened, you know? And she gave a very thorough scientific explanation mm-hmm. of why she remembers the things she remembers but they wanted to have it both ways say that they're sure that it happened but it just it could not be him because he had been nobody else had said it about him no one else had said this about him um these these 40 60 plus women had said that he was an upstanding citizen mm-hmm. You know, how could this one person be be the only case standing up and, and saying that but it, it always comes back to why, what does she get out of line? What does she get now? She doesn't have, she doesn't get any money. She doesn't get, get anything out of that. So it, it was, it was very hard to yeah. watch that. And I mean, I think that um, if I'm recalling correctly, a few other women did come forward mm-hmm. and say that he had um, somehow behaved inappropriately. And I guess we should also distinguish that she never claimed that he raped her, just that he had assaulted mm-hmm. her assaulted. yeah so um and so i don't right. want them to think that um i am trying to say that this was rape right um so it's just like national gaslighting right like um Ugh. one of the things that i said um while the hearings were taking place is that even on the progressive side you had all of these men who were psychologists or whatever writing opinion articles in the new york times saying, like, this is why her testimony is believable, according to neuroscience. And I refuse to post those because Mm. I'm so... And and my response at the time was, like, I'm so tired of men needing to confirm with their brains the things that women know with their bodies. Mm. Um, And this is an embodied experiential knowledge that she's speaking from, and she spoke believably and eloquently about that i mean the most frustrating thing for me has been like the the series of responses about like oh it's such a scary time for boys because Mm. a woman can just make an accusation against you and ruin your life well you know donald trump is president of the united states kavanaugh is on the supreme court nothing happened to him my ex has a cushy tech job making over 100k a year he spent more time, I spent more time in the hospital than he spent doing um, community service to, to quote unquote, pay for his time. Wow. Pay for his, his abuse. Seems if like they're doing all right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, despite credible allegations. And I mean, my, I, the, the way the police got involved for me is that um, actually my ex's parents took me to the hospital after he hit me with a car and the police were called from the hospital. So, you know, I told them what had happened, and they called the police to take my statement. This is your your in-laws at that time? Yeah. Okay. They, they're they the ones who actually took me to the hospital. His behavior in the month prior had been erratic, and we were afraid that he was having an acute sort of mental episode, right? I didn't have any shoes on. I just 
like I was vomiting out my car window, but I went to their house um, and I was like, I need to go to the emergency room. Like I've been vomiting. He hit me with a car. I don't see any outward signs of trauma, but you know, um, I'm very hurt. I don't feel well. I'm in pain. I need to go to the emergency room. Can we, like, what do I say? Mm-hmm. What, was their, what was their response? They said, you need them to, you need them to do the diagnostic test that they would do to somebody who's been hit by a car, right? To make sure you're okay. Mm-hmm. You should not lie. And so I didn't lie. I, t- I said exactly what had happened. A police officer came to the emergency room and talked to me in the hospital room issued a warrant for his arrest for domestic violence and I think reckless driving or something ridiculous, battery, assault, etc. The hardest part of the story is that they didn't diagnose the concussion at that time. It took them, I, I went back to the hospital after I started blacking out a couple of days later where they diagnosed the concussion and gave me medicine for that. And I called my ex-mother-in-law on the phone and I said, do you know a pharmacy that's open? It was 8 p.m. or something. It's like, do you know a pharmacy in the area that's open now at 8 p.m. so that I can fill these medications? And she said, why do you need medicine? And I said, well, I just went back to the emergency room. It turns out I had a concussion. And she said, how did you get a concussion? And I said, when your son hit me with a car. And she said, oh, he didn't hit you with a car. He gently pushed you down the hill with a car. Wow. So really that that conversation, I mean, she had seen, you know, she had seen the aftermath of this. Right after it happened. Right after it happened. So she had already switched that, flipped mm-hmm. that switch. Mm-hmm. Because so, she, she wanted to believe her son, I'm sure. Yeah. So she threw out everything else that she knew that had happened, that she's she knew how you were at the state that you were and threw it out the window yeah and she wanted to um i mean it's hard to admit that you raised an abuser nobody wants to make that admission you know there's a lot of a lot of people that um may be in an abusive relationship or may see signs um or have gone through some situations like that what would you say are the best ways to support a friend or a family member who has expressed that they are currently in an abusive relationship? If they actually have the bravery to reveal, or if you sort of um, see those signs, what are some of the ways that you can show empathy? Um, what are some of the things not to say when when they're approaching you? You know, because there's obviously... Yeah, believe them and understand that PTSD, if they have it, I think about 40%, the statistics are about 40% of survivors of sexual assault go on to develop PTSD. So it's not all survivors that develop PTSD, but it is, as a group, it is um, one of the largest groups of people suffering from PTSD or because of sexual violence and domestic violence. And that's right up there with the number of uh, soldiers who suffer from PTSD because of, uh, because of war. Understanding PTSD, I think, helps you become a more empathetic friend, right? To know that one day you might be okay, but that um, healing isn't linear. Mm -hmm. That 
things are hard sometimes and things are not as hard some other times. Encourage them to get help. Go with them to get help. Um, I've driven people to therapy sessions to get them in the door before. And I think that's a really key part. It's um, one, understand for your own well-being that you we're not equipped as friends to be therapists. Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody has PTSD, I strongly recommend therapy as the best way to heal. And on top of that, individual therapy is great. Group therapy is even better. But it is really hard to get in the door. It's so hard. Especially so, if you've had the first time or second time that you go and you've had bad experiences. Mm-hmm, exactly. So just help them as much as you can. If you can drive them to an appointment, that is a fantastic way to help your friend. Avoid phrases that are terrible phrases to say all the time, right? <laughs> like, God only gives us what we can handle. Right. Like, the other woman said to me, you're too young and pretty for something this tar- terrible to have happened to you. Validate, right? Mm-hmm. and acknowledge that you can't understand what they're going through. I mean, there are, I, I understand my instance of domestic violence. I understand my instance of sexual violence. But there are other survivors that I can't even begin to understand their experience, right? Um, people who've experienced sexual violence as children. You know, I don't, I don't know what that's like. Um, and I can't speak to that, mm-hmm. but to say like, that's really terrible. I'm sorry. And just be open to listening, but don't force them to tell their story and let them go at their own pace. Right. Even though the domestic violence was reported when I went to the hospital, uh, it took me two years to finally go to the police about the rape. And when I did, it was more of a, if something happens in the future, I want this to be documented. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, if, if, you know, my perpetrator hurt somebody else, I want there to be evidence that he's hurt people in the past. Mm-hmm. Going to the police is not always an option, mm-hmm. but you can help by just being around. One of my best friends from high school, Samantha, she was my greatest cheerleader. And basically she would just call me and talk about everything else. Right. Because that's what I wanted to talk about. Because I didn't want to talk about this mm-hmm. when it happened. You know, it's taken me now seven years to be able to... Um, it took me seven years to be able to talk about this in public without sobbing. <laughs> and it's taken me that long. And still, you know, I was giving a presentation in April. And a student asked a question that did make me kind of tear up a little. Mm-hmm. Um, and pause for a second. Try to help them find a way to look forward to the future. Because one of the other symptoms of PTSD is that sense of foreshortened future, that you don't think that you're going to be alive in 10 years, um, and you don't even want to think about what your future might be. One of the things that we talked about in therapy is that for yourself, you know, you should think about the things you would do if you had a sick child in the house and do those things for yourself, right? Mm. Um, Take care of yourself as if you are another person because it's hard for people who have PTSD to forgive themselves, right? And especially with sexual violence, it comes with a lot of guilt because of the weight that we put on it. 
culturally, right? Mm -hmm. Because of the questions people ask. What were you wearing? Were you drinking? I couldn't even admit that what happened to me was rape for a very long time. I couldn't use the term rape because I was married. And I didn't think that people who were married could rape one another, mm -hmm. right? I didn't think you could be raped by somebody you were married to. Just that kind of, like, kindness, really. Mm -hmm. Just be kind. And PTSD can make you act erratically. One of my um, favorite, and it sounds so weird to say one of my favorite episode, one of my favorite discussions of sexual assault. <laughs> um, but one of my favorite discussions of sexual assault um, is on uh, an episode of This American Life. It's called The Anatomy mm. of Doubt. And it's about two different rape investigations. And it's about, you know, really at the core, a mother who doesn't believe her daughter has been assaulted because she's acting so erratically. But erratic behavior is often a symptom of trauma. A lot of people, there, there is no textbook PTSD. It's different for mm -hmm. everybody. There is no textbook case of PTSD. Everybody's PTSD is different. I mean, some people who suffer from sexual violence will not have sex for a very long time and sexual contact is very difficult for them. Other people will become exceedingly promiscuous in an attempt to react out the trauma when they are in control, right? Cast themselves in right. control. Right. And and I don't and I don't mean that to like perpetrate the violence against right. somebody else, but to do the thing that was traumatic yeah. without it being um, traumatizing anymore to sort of desensitize themselves to sex because thinking about sex is hard mm -hmm. but also like we've got to stop thinking about sex the way we do because with sexual violence in particular one of the things that makes it hard to talk about is that people is that it involves sex <laughs> like and we don't yeah. like to talk about sex mm -hmm. right and even though it's non-consensual and it's not it is not sex. It's not it consensual, positive sex. Right. It is an act of power. And aggression. And aggression against somebody else. But a lot of the reasons that people don't like to talk about sexual assault is because it involves sexual organs. And they're like, ew. <laughs> you know. Um, so, so, so you gotta like leave that at the door. Right. If somebody wants to tell you about their story about sexual assault, you have to just divorce that from your idea of... Of talk of having a frank conversation with somebody about about their sex life, right? It's very different, but we still have that ew sex organs. We gotta get rid like, of the gut response to it. That very Victorian Puritan, ooh. Puritan, <laughs> right? We're shaking it off slowly. <laughs> so, what does life look like after sexual abuse? What kind of treatments are there um, for people that have been through this to help them overcome? what they've been through. Well, we've already talked about mm -hmm. therapy is the main mm -hmm. thing that you've recommended mm -hmm. as well. That's a really good question. So I can talk a little bit about what life looks like for me after. Mm -hmm. And it, it looks a lot the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, like it's, um, I think I'm doing pretty well. I have learned in particular to incorporate elements of mindfulness into my daily life. Because anxiety is one of the main things I struggle with. And that's really been a long-lasting change that I've made as somebody who walks through the world, right? Mm -hmm. And mindfulness therapy is really, um, really useful for recovering from trauma. 
I also had some exposure therapy and individual therapy, which is in a controlled environment, and it's just basically meditating on the best and worst things that have happened in your life. So as to kind of basically reroute those pathways that go straight from, you know, the memory of trauma to adrenal glands producing adrenaline to like you running right Mm -hmm. so um, exposure therapy and that meditation that you do as part of exposure therapy helps to sort of reroute traumatic events and the memory of traumatic events to uh, keep you basically from panicking in situations that remind you of your trauma Mm -hmm. Uh, that should always be led by a licensed therapist that should always be uh, somebody that you should go to for for help in a controlled environment. That should mm-hmm. always take place with an expert in a controlled environment, um, especially if you're prone to anxiety attacks. There are, there are definitely times when I catch myself with a new memory from the trauma that triggers an instance of panic, and that happens probably about once every six months for me. And there are times when I have to step away from from. commenting on and thinking about current events because I know it's not what's best for me. So even though I'm very invested in the outcome of the hearings about Judge Kavanaugh and Dr. Ford, I couldn't let myself become... Get too close to it. Right. Because I knew that wasn't going to be healthy for me. Right. You, You mentioned earlier about at one point... And you say that with a lot of victims, like they can't mm-hmm. see their lives being longer than the next couple of years. They can't project that far out. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you've moved past that point for yourself or expanded that, that projection? I would love to help you have that on, like end on a positive note. Mm-hmm. And I think in certain ways, yeah. Um, but, it doesn't have to be a positive note. I mean, you are where you are, and yeah. trauma is trauma. Yeah, and like most of the time, yes, I plan for the future, and I think about the future, and I make plans and envision myself being a mother. Um, and I still, I still have concerns, right? Especially about mothering with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be a challenging. I under, I know that. I can sort of think about what I would like to do in the future and what I would like to do with my life. There are other times when things are particularly bad where I don't see myself living into my 40s, right? -hmm. My 30th birthday was this past summer, and it felt like a big relief because there was a time in my life where I didn't think I would see 30. Mm -hmm. Um, And particularly after trauma, um, and this is kind of funny, I guess, um, But after trauma, I felt both like, and maybe these are kind of opposite sides of the same feeling, but with regards to my life, I felt a little bit invincible because it was like, somebody tried to kill me and they failed. (laughs) Like, I felt a little bit like Superman, like, come at me. Like, you're not going to do any worse than somebody else has already tried to do, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And then... You know, one of the things that really helped me was thinking about, like, everything that has happened since that moment in June of 2011 where I could have died has been bonus life. So that kind of, like, foreshortened futurity, but in a more positive way, right? Right. Like, 
you know, if I die tomorrow, I got seven years of bonus life. <laughs> that seems pretty cool to me, yeah. right? <laughs> so I guess I was able to kind of take a positive spin on that foreshortened idea of, of my future. And I try to I try to think about that when things get really hard. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, this has all been bonus life. And I think I'm really making the best out of the bonus life that I've lived since then. I think that's a good note to end on. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we want to thank you so much, Kelly, for taking time out of your busy life oh, to, to talk yes, to us about, about this topic that's very relevant, unfortunately, you know, it's, <sighs> in, in, in many aspects of our lives. And, but it's, I feel like with, like with mental illness and borderline personality disorder, anxiety, depression, talking about it only helps. Yeah. And it's only through expressing ourselves and, and getting things out that we are able to not only understand one another, so we can, de- so we can empathize with each other and so you, we can, ex- not experience, but begin to have that kernel of experience from somebody else just through what they're communicating to us right it helps us learn how to be kind to Mm -hmm. one another Um, and it helps us learn how to interact with one another in kinder general ways yeah we get rid of stigma by talking about things and you know i think this was a a great discussion that can help somebody um, people that maybe know somebody who has gone through this before and you know, or uh, maybe somebody who is actually going through this, you know, by hearing your story, maybe they'll want to become an advocate too yeah. and actually, you know, go out and, and help other people. So really do want to thank you, Kelly, for stopping by and um, sitting here with our, our cat, Zoe. And <laughs> Zoe's been a great, a great podcast participant. <laughs> Sleeping all the time. Yeah. So uh, guys, it's uh, AJ, the INFP. And Chris and, and Chris, Kelly. yes, and Kelly. <laughs> and I'm also an INFJ. Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's an uh, introvert here. Yeah. <laughs> and guys, stay tuned to hear about what we'll be talking about on our next episode. All right. Bye. Bye. See you later. If you love listening to the show, why not support our cause? We ask for a dollar a month to help grow our website and reach more people. If you feel like what we do is important and makes a difference, we ask that you stop by borderlineidealist.com and click on the Patreon link in the menu. Thank you as always for listening, sharing, and inspiring us to do bigger and better things. Thank you for joining us this Sunday. Follow us on our Facebook group and Instagram for more behind the scenes. If you like the episode, why not help AJ and Chris reach more people and leave an iTunes review to help others discover the podcast. Together, we can defeat mental health stigma.